Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're also continuing um, the Gospel of St. Luke that we've been dealing with now for several weeks. And today we're going to look at chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Again, a very familiar parable. And uh, he's, and once again, whenever, and I've said this before, whenever Jesus uh, gives a parable, we have to be aware of those to whom he is speaking, because he's going to be tailored to the audience. If it's to the Pharisees, it's one thing. If it's the disciples, another thing. And here it says he spoke to the following, to some people who prided themselves on being virtuous and despised everyone else. Well, he's obviously talking then to the Pharisees because whatever the, whatever the truth of the whole Pharisaical community might have been, that in the scriptures they become kind of the symbols of the self-righteous. And uh, which is a little bit strange because, you know, Jesus himself was considered a Pharisee um, simply because of the kind of, uh, within the context of Judaism, which kind of uh, tenets that he held to be true. But for our purposes here, Jesus uses the Pharisees always as an example of some people who prided themselves on being virtuous and despised everyone else. And so we know what the parable is. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. But it goes, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood there and said this prayer to himself. I thank you, God, that I am not grasping unjust adulteress like the rest of mankind, and particularly that I am not like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector stood some distance away, not daring even to raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man, I tell you, went home again at night at rights with God, and the other one did not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the man who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, pretty clear what's going on here, but we have to look at it a little bit more deeply because we have to find in it those kinds of elements which are not just quick judgments on our contemporary experience, but which help us to look and delve more deeply into our contemporary experience in order that we might understand what the gospel is saying to us. We have to remember, you know, it's really, it's really interesting because... Um, in Paul's second letter to, uh, to Timothy, you know, he says that, uh, that remember who your teachers were and how ever since you were a child you have known the Holy Scripture. From these you can learn wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and can profitably be used for teaching, for refuting error, for guiding people's lives, and for teaching them to be holy. 
So Paul is telling us the purposes of Scripture. We have to implement those, purchase, those purposes of Scripture in our own understanding of the gospel and not just take it superficially or not just take it, take it you know, as, as a quick reflection. Of, oh, yeah, the self-righteous are, you know, they're obnoxious and, and it's the sinners that go to heaven. That's not the conclusion. That's not the conclusion at all because it's more complex than that. First of all, the Pharisees, as we know, and we repeat it over and over again, but it's important to create the context. It's important to create the, the life structure of the, of the people that Jesus is speaking to and the culture in which they lived. And, and, uh, and this, is, this, is part of the, this is part of the problem of kind of a literal interpretation of the scriptures, um, is that out of context, the literal meaning can be very different for us than it was intended in the beginning. There are certain times when literalism is necessary, when, for instance, it breaks through first century culture and it, per and it proclaims a truth which is uh, transcendent to time and place and culture. But most of the time, and a lot of the time, we, we have to be aware, aware of the fact that we have to situate what the Lord is saying. And so we, we've run across this before. Here is the Pharisee. He's reciting all that he has done. Everything that he has done has been in fulfillment of the law. And we, over and over again, we say there's 636 laws that they have to obey every day to be righteous. Um, that doesn't mean they have to make 636 conscious decisions every day. But it does mean that in the conscious decisions of their life that they do make, they must conform to this body of law. We saw, for instance, in the story of the Good Samaritan, that the priest and the Levite did nothing wrong by passing the man laying alongside the road because nothing in the law compelled them to stop and to take care of him. And so they did not violate the law in what they were doing, and therefore what they did was just and righteous. And so here now, the Pharisee is, is, uh, is employing that very same kind of mindset. And he's saying, I thank you, God, that I am not grasping unjust adulterers like the rest of mankind, and that I am not like this tax collector, and here's all the things that I do. And sometimes I even obey the law in the extreme, and I go beyond its particular prescript, and I do something, you know, that is an extension of that prescript. So who, most, who else could be just or righteous? And this is a double-edged sword, too, because when the Scripture calls someone a just man, as they did, say, as, as it does Joseph, St. Joseph, um, it means that he, he does, not, not that he obeys pharisaically the law of the rabbis, but he lives his life in the context of the law of Jewish culture. And so once he goes on with that, then he ends up, therefore, proclaiming himself righteous. But it's really interesting because Jesus, as the Pharisee, stood there and said this prayer to himself. Jesus does not even allow this kind of a conversation to be between ourselves and God. He's not even allowing God to be so insulted by our righteousness. He's saying the man's simply talking to himself because nobody else cares what he's saying, least of all the God to whom he prays, who takes, is taking anything he says seriously. 
And and I and I think that uh, you know there was a very strange and uh, kind of obnoxious film out. I don't know how long ago, forty years ago, it was a Peter O'Toole film, and it was about this this English nobleman who uh, went insane and believed himself to be the Lord. And uh, when confronted by a uh, bishop of the Anglican Church as to why he thought he was the Lord, he said, well, I prayed and prayed, and I finally realized I was talking to myself. Tremendously clever line, actually, and cleverly divide, uh, delivered by O'Toole. Nevertheless, it has a, it, there is a depth to that. Prayers of self-justification are interior conversations with ourselves. They are not presenting us before the Lord. Because this is part of the problem, and this is part of the way that we run into difficulties, even with our faith and within our church, that people set up an, an, um, non-negotiable standards as, as uh, indicators of holiness or indicators of fidelity. And whether that's, you know, if you don't make three holy hours a week, you're not a good Catholic, or if you're not in support of modern progressive political ideas like, like climate change and some of the other things, then how can you possibly be a Christian? People ask, you know, how, how could you be a Christian and be, and, you know, and, 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 and vote against this or that or the other thing? They set up criteria and standards which have nothing to do with the Lord and everything to do with the milieu in which we live, our culture, our time, our place. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. And it matters not whether the Pharisees are, are more traditional or more progressive. That's not the issue. The issue is that there are no external criteria that we can create to pass judgment on the state of another person's soul. We can, as a matter of fact, critique the criteria that people give us. We can certainly say, I'm not exactly sure how this you know, particular political position makes me in some way, shape, or form more pleasing to God, or some kind of uh, devotional practice is necessary for us you know, to, be, to be in communication with the Lord that in the context of the sacramental life of the church and in the context of the, of the magisterium of the church, there, is, there are innumerable ways in which people can find and enter into conversation with the Lord, some with great simplicity, some with great complexity. Some do it through the intellectual life and others do it through the life of feeling. Um, some do it as an openness to the Spirit, and others do it as an openness to a love of Jesus Christ in their lives, or the involvement of the Blessed Mother in their lives, and so forth. None of us can establish these determined criteria. We have certain necessities, yes. We worship the Lord when the Lord invites us to come into his house and worship him, which is on Sundays. We also have, from time to time, we have access to the other sacraments of the church, to the sacrament of reconciliation, which gives us a new start each time we go in our lives and helps us to start over again as humble Christians before the Lord. That confession of sin is one of the, is one of the signs of, of humility of the Christian, that they are willing to reveal um, to another human being and to God in their own consciousness, those failures that they have experienced, those sins they have committed, 
And those times when, in fact, they have been distant from him and ignored him, been away from him, or substituted something else in their life for him. We find this, you know, all the time. For instance, the whole peculiarities of, uh, of, uh, of the sexual nature of so many of our sins. Um, basically, the whole thing usually is, it's a question of selfishness. It's I'm more important than he is, and I'm more important than, than maybe the other person is if I'm involved with another person. That it's what I want that matters. And I think that, that so often, the, this then is, when we can confess that, when we can see that outside of ourselves, that's a great step forward. I think that we find also people who are radical ideologues within the church. And if you do not agree with their ideology, once again, depending upon where it comes from, is no, of no consequence. But when it becomes an ideology rather than a relationship with the Son of God, it is, should not be imposed upon other people. And this takes us then the people who can say, well, if you say that, then why does the church have a right to tell us anything if it's all so personal, if it's all so individually oriented? And I think that an overall response to that an overall response to that is that if you love someone, then the more you know about them, the more deeply you love them. That you cannot in any way, shape, or form not like a person whom you have learned to love and whom you have learned to love moves beyond infatuation and being fans when you move into the depth of who that other person is. The whole theological body of the church is there to lead us into the mystery of the person of Christ. It does so certainly through the extension of his family, his mother, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints, all of those help us to understand who Jesus is. That is that whatever we find in the great councils of the church, whether it's the Christological councils of the early centuries or whether it's the unfolding of a deeper meaning that have come in subsequent councils, whether it's the insight in the, of the Council of Trent into the, into the nature of division within Christianity and of healing remedy, therefore. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's there not to impose upon us an abstract doctrine, but to lead us more deeply into the mystery of who is the person of Jesus Christ. You know, if you've ever had a, a friend or, or couples who date, who are, come from different places, um, there's a huge change in the relationship, either a friendship or in this, in this uh, pre-marriage uh, relationship. There's, there's a, a big change and a big differentiation when we meet the families of these people because all of a sudden they become more known to us. All of a sudden we see more about them and we understand them better than when they were simply isolated in a personal relationship with us in some way, shape, or form. They have a context and they have a family and they have a background and they have life experiences before we met them which, uh, which have been formative and important and significant. 
But when we move into the mystery of their lives, when we meet, for instance, their families, or we experience their, their environments of childhood or adolescence or, or, or any stage of their life, when we do all that, there's a deeper understanding and a deeper knowledge of those people. That's what the magisterium of the church is there to do. The magisterium of the church is there to guide us into a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ by allowing us to understand, grasp, and experience the vastness of that which made him a human man, that made him human in such a way that we then can understand also more deeply the element of the divine, the divine personhood that is within the man Jesus of Nazareth. So that when we find so much in the, in the contemporary in the contemporary theological world, and unfortunately we 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 find it um, in in the German synod, um, we we began to understand that to change to reject the magisterium of the church is to narrow and obfuscate our understanding of who is the Lord Jesus. And it is like the Pharisee in the gospel. It's to impose our own understanding of who Jesus is rather than to be recipients of his openness, of his revelation of himself to us. And, and, and I think that we, this, this, is, this is pride, and we have it in every age. I am so bright that I certainly know more than the Council Fathers of Chalcedon, or I am so bright that I certainly know more than the Council Fathers of Trent, or I am so bright, I certainly know more than the Council Fathers of, of Vatican I or of Vatican II. I think part of the problem with Vatican II is that we never had time to absorb the Council before what we call the spirit of Vatican II took charge and altered um, the documents altered what was contained within the council. And we find that still going on in the upper echelons of the church today. You know, we're going to redefine this. We're going to read it. No, you're not. The council documents stand as they are. And I think one of the most important things, one of the ones that we can see more easily in all of this is the whole idea of the liturgy. If we go back and we read Sacrosanctum Concilium, the decree on liturgy in the Second Vatican Council, and then we look at what happened in the subsequent spirit of Vatican II, we find two radically different formats of liturgy. And we find, for instance, that, that the document of Vatican II was not implemented or accepted or understood because there was too much cultural pressure at the time to unravel the whole thing. And uh, as Annabelle Bonini, who was helped to implement um, the new liturgical practices and so forth, said, his one pr main pr guiding principle was, let's make it as least offensive to Protestants as possible. Um, that's not in the council documents. That's not, that doesn't come from the council fathers. Um, certainly one of the most significant characters in, in, in the writing of the Sacrosanctum Concilium was uh, Father Joseph Jungmann from the University of Innsbruck, along with Louis Bouillet, who is the French oratorian, liturgical scholar. Um, 
they never said any of those things that we found happening. They had a very, very measured um, sense of how the liturgy could be developed from its roots and what, how it could, and how it could then, you know, be more, more uh, useful in some ways of, in, of sanct for sanctification of, of, of the people of God. So, but we had people who knew, seemed to know more, and we still have people who seem to know more than the Council of Fathers at the time knew. And, um, and that becomes now the new definition of the Second Vatican Council, which, which it's not. And, uh, and it is no different than, than the Pharisees standing before God, telling them how righteous he is, standing before the whole church and saying, we know better than the Council Fathers, we know better than anybody else, and so why don't you do it our way? It was a Pharisaical movement within the church, and the very thing that Jesus is talking about in the first part of this, of this parable. We cannot assume to ourselves that which belongs to the whole church, and we cannot assume for ourselves that which belongs to God. How best do we receive the gifts of God and how best do we receive the gifts of the church? By, by taking the posture of the tax collector in this gospel that we've just read. And say before beat his breast and say, God be merciful to me a sinner. That we ourselves are not, are not in any way, shape or form the arbiters of truth. No matter how brilliant we think we are, no matter how authentic we think our personal experiences might be, that we are, we are not a substitute for revelation, and we are not the sole, the sole mediators of the revelation of God's word to humanity. And that's this, this pride is something that religion has a tendency to nurture for some reason. We see it create the Pharisees, and we see it create this, this, this image of the Pharisees, which isn't complete or total, but it's something the New Testament uses, so we can use it, that it is the Pharisees of every age. And it is, and it is the bottom, there's two things that lie underneath this. The first, is the pride in the self that I am righteous. And the second is, is I know more than anybody else. I'm better than anybody else. Anybody that doesn't do it my way is somehow or other not in conformity with the way that we should be as religious believers. I think certainly those of us who are priests and listen to this have experienced this in parishes throughout our lives, where some group or other feels that they have been especially designated somehow or other by the Holy Spirit or by the spirit of the age to radically change the nature of Christian worship and radically change the nature of the church and so forth. I think that, um, that certainly um, all members of the church have experienced this in some way, shape, or form. It's not that some people are not better educated in it than others. They are. And, and that's something the priest is supposed to be. He's supposed to understand the depth of what's being said and not just skim the surface. And he is to understand the depth of the difference, of the conflict that exists between the secular world and divine revelation. And that's true in every age. That's not just true in our own. 
that you know there's a there's a fascinating there's a fascinating book very lengthy by Eugen Rosenstock Husey called Out of Revolution and it really it traces the whole story of western civilization and sees it and sees it as a conflict beginning in the 11th century as a conflict between roman catholicism and secularism and that this is kind of the 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 dynamic that has created western culture and uh, and and i think that that when we simply accept culture the, the secular culture, and say, you know, this is more authentic than the revelation of the church, than the magisterium of the church, than the experience of the church, then we have, we have capitulated. We have capitulated to the powers of darkness. And in so doing, we bring nothing but more darkness into the church. It is the humble person who stands before the Lord and stands before the mystery of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the person who stands humbly before the mystery of the divine revelation of the Word of God in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the person who stands humbly before, you know, the, the virgin birth, the mother of God, the Theotokos, the one who stands humbly before the wisdom of the church throughout the ages, the one who, even if they be great scholars or simple believers, are willing to submit to the fact that they, like, like the tax collector, are inadequate to be full vessels of the whole truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Their methods, their understanding, their knowledge, their wisdom, all of that is subjected to the truth of the gospel and the truth of the magisterial right of the church. This is significant for us to understand. And it's not just saying, you know, well, in this day and age, we have this, that, or the other. Yeah, we do have it, but we've always had it. And that's the difference. It is the question of where do those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, what choices are they willing to make in the midst of the secular and cultural milieu of every age? Um, even back into the days of Pope Damasus in the 5th century, it was the two swords, the sword of the spiritual sword and the civil sword. There is never a total harmony between those things because there is a darkness that pervades the secular societies of every age. And the work of the evil one is never at rest, always to take something that is good and turn it into something that is not. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying the Pharisees are. They have deluded themselves, he says, to where they think it is their own actions which save them, which make them righteous, rather than submission to the grace of, of, of God, of, of God in the old covenant, and of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. This is our mission as Christians. This is our mission as Catholics. We are not in charge individually and personally of the, of the kingdom of God on earth. We are humble servants who receive and accept in humility that which is given to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ entrusted under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to his church. And when we receive that, then we can say, how do I implement it? What is a deeper meaning? How can I understand this better? But we never may put ourselves as the ones who say, no, listen to me, not to God, 
not to Jesus, not to the church, but to me. And we have much too much of that today, as we have had much too much of that throughout the centuries. It is our burden, and it is the cross the church carries as she wanders. Hugo, Father Hugo Rahner said, is the dusty pilgrimess of the desert, as the one who struggles on through the courses of history, under the terrible pressures of infidelity and apostasy, of falsehood, of pride, and of ignorance. But we pray. And we pray for the church and for ourselves that that spirit of Christ remain pure and holy and present in the sacramental life of our church and in the hearts of our people. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Thank you.